Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 352, The Beard Unsinged. Now obviously you are expecting me to sweep you away from the plague-torn London to the green fields of 17th century Oxford and the reconvened 1625 Parliament. And I will do that at some point. But... I also promised faithfully last time that we would talk about religion, you and I, and Richard Montague. And I think it's important that we do that, because it will hopefully throw a useful light on what will be an irritating of habit of MPs over the next few years to just keep returning to the subject of religion. However hard the government tries to say, just show me the money. I hate to use a dog walking analogy again here, but it's like, when you get to a particular field on your dog walk and the bloody dog hairs off like a blue arsed fly into the distance to the exact same spot every time, despite your desperate entreaties for him not to. Because something died down there ten years ago, smelt just fantastic, and the doggy brain remembers that and the nose can still do the honours because the doggy nose is quite a thing. Drives me up the wall when I forget and haven't applied the lead before said field arrives. Keeps going back to the same old spot. Anyway, Parliament and indeed the people keep doing that. And there's an argument that is this that leads to civil war. Don't discuss that yet, though. When I was, and a little tiny boy with a hey-ho, the wind and rain, I wondered at the rubric of the civil war I often came across, which was that Charles I was a closet Catholic, trying to take England back to Rome. And although... This could have been that my brain was as small as were my legs and mainly focused on my spaghetti hoops. It seemed to me that surely the evidence that Charles was an honest defender of the Church of England was legion and irrefutable, and that whatever you think of the chap, he took his coronation oath to defend the Church very seriously indeed. So, after the session of the 1629 Parliament, just as an example, he promised that neither shall we give way to the authorising of anything, whereby any innovation may steal or creep into the church, but to preserve the unity of doctrine, a discipline established in the time of Queen Elizabeth, whereby the Church of England hath stood and flourished ever since. So that seems fair enough, does it not? And yet it is also true to say that very intelligent people believed the king as a closet papist story at the time. So I am reading the Tyrannicide Brief by Geoffrey Robertson at the moment about John Cook, the lawyer that prepared the case against Charles I, and in it he visits the Calvinist minister of the Italian church in Geneva, John Diodati, who remarks that 
The Protestants have Charles I's body, but the Papists have his heart. Well, I guess I put it down to the extraordinary levels of hysteria that gripped most of England, Wales and Scotland at the time about the spiritual threat of the Pope as Antichrist and the Catholic powers arranged against them politically, so that the constant professions by Charles that he would admit of no innovations and maintain the church of the Elizabethan settlement just fell on deaf ears and on mouths that had an axe to grind. But it was Conrad Russell, I believe, who came to me one day, gently took me by the hands and led me into the light. Does that sound a little creepy? I mean, the answer's obvious, really, when he said it. Charles's understanding of the Elizabethan settlement was just different to those of many of his opponents. What Conrad also maintained, which shone another ray of light into the larger and yet more cluttered brain of my adult years, was the idea that not only did Charles's view of what constituted the Elizabethan church differ from some of his enemies, but also from most of his friends. So although we're just about to talk of Arminianism, there is another level to this. Charles even left the Arminians behind in his view of church doctrine, which was illustrated by the affair of Richard Montague. The nub of it was the extraordinary status awarded by both Montague and Charles to the role of bishops. I'd better explain who Richard Montague was. In 1624, this rector and archdeacon involved himself in a dispute about the true doctrine of the church. Never something to be advised, by the way. This was a long-running dispute between, let us call them, the Calvinists, the core of the Church of England, and the growing party of Arminians. At its heart was the doctrine of predestination, which really lay the one core belief shared across the Church of England, which held it together. As I think I claimed way back in 1559, the Church of England has always been a compromise, an attempt in itself to deliver religious toleration to some degree by allowing as broad a range of views as possible within it. And broadly, I suppose, summarised by the description as Protestant theology wearing proto-Catholic ceremonial. But even predestination began to be challenged by the teachings of Jacob Arminius. I don't believe I want to go into the various degrees of predestination and double predestination because I'll probably get it wrong, so forgive me if I offend those of you who really know this stuff by saying that the most extreme Calvinists believe that it didn't matter what you did in your life at all, you were either saved or damned, and your status as damned was as defined as your status as saved, although there were more gentle Calvinist positions on that, claiming that uh, you weren't necessarily damned, and you can have some impact during your life. But Arminius preached that actually God had an eye out for you even during your life, and how you behaved could definitely make a dis- difference to your the destination of your soul. At the Synod of Dort in the Netherlands, attended by English divines, as it was, Arminius was officially rejected by the Reformed churches there, and the Synod produced in 1619 the Canons of Dort, to which English Calvinists ached for the Church of England to sign up to also, and keep trying to achieve that aim. So, thus far the basis of Calvinism versus Arminianism. There's a lot more to it than that, which we'll come to, but the most threatening part is the core belief of predestination, which actually gets talked about less in history, things like mine for some reason, and the focus turns to ceremonial and royal authority, and I guess that's because it's sexier, if sexy be the right word here. But at the heart of the struggle between the traditional Calvinist Church of England 
and the innovation of Arminianism is that challenge to the core belief of predestination that held the Church of England together. Now, James showed some signs of wandering towards the Arminian side a bit more by the end of his reign, but one of his signal achievements, in fact, was that he managed to keep a balance between Calvinist divines and Arminian. He wandered because he began to see Puritans, who usually mapped onto extreme or radical Calvinists, as carrying the seeds of disloyalty to royal church authority, and he was prejudiced against the more radical Calvinists from his Scottish experience with the likes of Andrew Melville. But by the time of his death, really the Calvinists were in a comfortable ascendancy within the Church of England, and the pressure towards separatism, as I believe I have said before, was titchy-tiny, small and weeny. But Arminians nevertheless felt that they did have a voice within the Church. Part of what he did was simply not to allow people to preach and publicly debate the finer points of these tiny theological differences that got the more extremists so warm under the rough. And actually, that turned out to be an important part of a clever, effective and very, very important royal balancing job, as Charles's neck would discover to its cost. I have to say, I know it's not a popular view, but I suspect that just sweeping stuff under the carpet is more often a good strategy than we'd like to think in many ways. Don't shout at me. So, Richard Montague then, he got involved in the Calvinist-Arminian debate when in 1624 he published A Gag for the New Gospel? No, a new gag for an old goose. This catchily entitled little number was an answer to an earlier paper by another divine, and it included an aggressive attack on the Calvinist doctrines of predestination, which he claimed had no part at all in the 39 articles that formed the theological statement of belief of the Church of England. The Commons got very angry about the new gag, but the Commons weren't supposed to be commenting and getting angry on matters of doctrine. That was the job of the convocation of the church, and so all they could do was refer it to George Abbott. George Abbott was a reassuringly Calvinist Archbishop of Canterbury, and he tried to have James squish Montague's publication, but annoyingly James just asked Montague to clarify his position, and the result was a doubling down from Montague, an even more aggressive attack in his next bestseller, the Apello Caesarum. One big danger in Montague's argument was that it removed a careful distinction that James had made. He had made a clear distinction between Puritans and Calvinists. Calvinists were fine. He was one too, he said, born and bred, so Calvinist, tick. Puritans he defined as those that denied the authority of the king in the church, so Presbyterians, nonconformists, separatists. But Montague argued that there was no such distinction. Calvinists were all nonconformists, because predestination had no place in Church of England theology. This obviously challenged a fundamental fudge on which the unity of the Church of England had depended. And then James croaked before it was clear where he came down on as regards Montague's opinions, and so Montague's opinions remained out there. So is this frying your brains or are you still with me? Not many gags in theological debate, I have to say. But next to the bit about how Charles then deals with this. 
But firstly, back to that bit where Charles's views exceeded even the more radical Arminians, where even they would not follow him and Montague. That concerned the extraordinarily high view both Charles and Montague had about bishops. Bishops were not simply officers of the church in their view. In Charles's view, they were part of a succession appointed by God. Without them, Charles said, we should have neither lawful priests nor sacraments duly administered. Now, almost no one, not even William Lord, not his closest supporters, would follow Charles into his theory of the divinity of bishops. For Charles, it's not just about bishops and their role in supporting royal influence in the church. The divinity of the bishop's role underpinned the legitimacy of the Church of England. The point I am rather clumsily making then, just to cut to the point, is that the view Charles had of the Church of England was an extreme one in itself. So I finally, finally reached the point. So when Charles stood up and declared that he would admit of no innovation from Elizabeth's settlement, no one actually believed him, because as far as they were concerned, that's exactly what he was doing already, introducing this innovation. In this way, the circle is squared. Both protagonist and antagonist firmly believed that they were sincere in what they were saying. Charles was utterly sincere in defending the beliefs of the Church of England in his view. But worse than that, neither party were able to admit that the other one sincerely held their opposing view, and so they passed like ships in the night, unable to understand the position of the other. And as an aside, when we come to introduce John Pym, it is worth noting that Parliament there acquired a leader who would also hold views that many on the Calvinist side considered too extreme for their blood. And so the leader of Parliament and the leader of the Royalist cause were themselves leading factions within their own faction, which made it difficult, if not impossible, to build a broad, unified party and agreement. As we were here, Charles also begins to support the Arminian point of view in a wider way, and that will do the most damage, but it's an important part of the story that he sets himself into a position about bishops that will make even his supporters look at him askance. Back to Richard Montague and the Parliament then. The Parliament in London were frustratingly limited in what they could say to Montague, because they were not supposed to rule on doctrine, as I said, but they heard him claim that his views had been approved by James, and so they charged him instead with dishonouring the king's memory and of contempt of Parliament in publishing his second paper. And then, on the 9th of July, just when Parliament thought they might have Montague in their sights, Charles dropped a bombshell. Effectively, he pulled rank. He announced that Montague had been appointed a royal chaplain and was therefore his personal servant, and so Parliament should just drop the whole thing. And he... Charles would deal with anything which needed doing, any disciplinary procedures or investigations and so on, which of course would turn out to be effectively doing nout. There was nothing Parliament could do. Parliament was prorogued at that point anyway, and it left a very nasty taste in the parliamentary mouth. And the Calvinists now had a reasonably worrying view of the religious tendencies of their royal master since he had stepped in to save such a recalcitrant and Arminian-oriented minister. Now, if Charles hoped that proroguing Parliament and moving to Oxford in August would clear the air, he was sadly mistaken, because the plague was now approaching Oxford like a spider 
crawling up the bed in front of the eyes of the terrified arachnophobe. So Parliament were desperately pulling their toes up the bed away from said plague-ridden spider and wishing to be gone from Oxford too. Also, the news about those blasted boats that they'd lent to France were all over the place. Now France had gone and made peace with the foreign power that they'd wanted to use those boats against, Genoa. So what were they for now? And everyone was faced with the horrifying prospect of English Protestant warships being diverted by the French to be used to suppress French Protestants at La Rochelle, which was a genuinely horrifying prospect. Meanwhile, Parliament appears to have been asked for extra money by the King, even though they'd already voted subsidies for him. That was annoying, because surely it was time to turn to grievances now, and those were sidelined, and they'd been warned off talking about religion again. In a long speech to both houses, Buckingham was having none of their irritations, and he defended the government's record as far as the ships were concerned, and to be fair to him, he was the victim there of a real stitch-up by one of the century's outstanding statesmen and wheeler-dealers, Cardinal Richelieu. Buckingham stoutly repeated the demand to Parliament for extra supply because the bills were not imaginary and war, which the Parliament had asked for after all, was pricey. One of the problems was that they were now effectively asking for just another £40,000. So on the one hand, MPs worried about the precedent because it was traditional to have but one bill on subsidies for each Parliament and having the prospect of as many as the King liked open the prospect of badgering. And as much as everyone loved loves badgers, no one, ladies and gentlemen, wants a badger in their house. But also, all this fuss over just 40,000 quid, really? Surely the king can raise that by borrowing on the money market so we can get away from that creepy plague spider on the sheets. One of the people objecting, by the way, was Thomas Wentworth, the future Earl of Strafford and famous supporter of the king. Edward Cook was on his hind legs again, objecting to the procedure though saying that he'd willingly give a thousand quid to prosecute the war on a private basis. Buckingham's style didn't go down well either. He was undeniably just a little bit full of himself. One of the MPs, a Cornishman called John Elliot, was a client of Buckingham at the Parliament, but even for him, Buckingham's tendency to big himself up went down rather poorly. Many things of arrogance were observed, as in the narrative which he made of that great change in Christendom, usurping the work unto himself which time and providence had effected, turning fortuitous into his glory. John Eliot would transfer his allegiances to an alternative peer, the Earl of Pembroke, who'd been active at court longer than Buckingham even, and part of the so-called patriotic party. This would yield Buckingham bitter fruit. Eliot was a talented parliamentary speaker, and, you know, a troublemaker. Charles, meanwhile, moved smoothly into badgering mode. His new Chancellor of the Exchequer, Richard Weston, an increasingly important councillor of the King, was sent with a message, get me supply voted, we need to get that fleet on the high seas to prosecute this war against Spain that you voted for, or it'll be too late in the year. And anyway, see that spider? You'd better be quick, it's got plague and it's coming for you. But Parliament would not do so. Robert Phillips spoke again and spoke for many. You might remember that he'd tried to help the King in London, but he had something of a history as a bit of a troublemaker too. Another Cornishman, as it happens. Phillips had pursued grievances at the 1614 and 1621 parliaments under James. There appears to be an emerging correlation between Lip and Cornishman. We should keep an eye on that. 
He was also another MP who'd been trained as a lawyer at the Inns of Court in London. So this made the, the abuse a procedure. For him, there should be no subsidies without discussion of grievances and there should be only one grant of subsidies. Very important to him. Many lawyers in Parliament were very conscious, more than most, of parliamentary privilege and also very conscious of how badly parliamentary representation was faring on the continent. So Phillips spoke up, and what he said is quite interesting. We are the last monarchy in Christendom that retain our original rights and constitutions. Let them not perish now. Let not posterity complain that we have done for them worse than our fathers did for us. Even this early, constitution and it, the issues around it were coming up here. Someone somewhere in the court, though, marked Philip's card. We must talk about lawyers versus clerics sometime soon also, but this is not that time, but we'll come back to it. For Philip's, though, and the commons generally agreed with him, they would go no further without doing things in the right order. And so effectively they said no to their king, drew up a remonstrance in the standard passive-aggressive style, thanking the king for reassuring them that he'd make no innovations in religion, but effectively saying, come back to us on supply and subsidies when there's been a chance for us to discuss reforms and grievances. Worse, all of this leads to resentment beginning to focus on Buckingham himself. It's interesting, but we have seen in Robert Phillips, John Eliot and Thomas Wentworth, three Buckingham clients starting the Parliament doing their bit to help the boss, but ending up going their own way. This hacked Buckingham off something rotten. What's the point of promoting the interests of your clients if they're then not going to do what you tell them to? And it reveals a different attitude to clientage and loyalty that has resonance also with the King, I think. What the Duke wanted in return for his favour was loyalty to himself as a person and complete commitment to his policies. What Wentworth, Phillips and Eliot were offering Buckingham was an alliance of equals in which their views would carry as much weight with Buckingham as anyone else's. It's an important difference of viewpoint. There's also a whole lot of backdoor politicking stuff going on at the time, which I don't really think we should get into in detail, but let me try and summarise just so you know, it's going on because this is a pimple that will turn into a carbuncle of epic proportions. Essentially, Buckingham gets worried about the muttering amongst MPs about government policies and his personal arrogance and relationship with them. So, he turns to his locker of secret stratagems and clever tricks and remembers that, aha, last time he'd managed to distract the lightning directed at his head by throwing a royal minister to the wolves, Francis Bacon. And while the wolves had been busy ripping that body to shreds, they'd been too busy to see him creeping away. Great, let's do that again. So, Buckingham identified one Lord Williams, Keeper of the Great Seal, as a suitable mark. And questions appeared from his client MPs about Williams's role. Surely this is the man we should be worrying about, not Buckingham. Now Lord Williams is in a sense an easy target. He's the Bishop of Lincoln, as it happens. But he's a slightly unlikely bishop, very heterodox, friendly with all sorts and folks from all religious groups, and a man who also likes to live in some personal style. Also, though, he's sadly very good at the briefing game, and he shoves everything right back at Buckingham. To give him his due, Williams doesn't just leave it there, he also warns Charles that there's a head of steam working itself up against his favourite Buckingham, and that when it comes to Parliament, 
Charles should manage that very carefully indeed, or he'll find himself in hot water. But Charles, meanwhile, surveyed all of this and was not pleased with what he saw, frankly. He talked to his Privy Council about what to do, and there was a full and frank exchange of views. Lord Williams warned against giving up at this point, and that all that would happen if Parliament was now dissolved would be the need for a new Parliament, and that at a new Parliament, in his words, the next swarm will come out of the same hive. The same problems would just reappear. But Charles saw growing discontent with his buddy, uppity MPs asking questions rather than doing what they were told, no prospect of supply being granted any time soon anyway, and we're in August, and if that fleet is going to sail and give the Spanish a bloody nose, they were going to have to get on with it. And so he went to his room of requirements, because he was in need, and the room gave him his magic wand, the wand of dissolution, and Charles waved the wand, and Parliament was dissolved, and all his worries disappeared. Well, they didn't. He still didn't have his money, but Look, that battle could be fought another day. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So, just in summary, we have quietly, and by little tiny baby steps, come to a pretty pass. If we stand back a moment and compare the Stuart parliaments to the Tudor ones, there is a theme emerging. Somehow, the Tudors just manage the whole thing better. They throw Parliament bones at various points, such as Henry VIII declaring that he was never so great as when he stood in Parliament. Elizabeth stroked and praised them. She knew when to give way gracefully when she knew that she'd hit a sore point, as with monopolies and her golden speech of 1601. She managed them when they got uppity, and generally the role of Parliament was to meet with their monarch, pretty meekly, and be part of government, and generally do what they were told. Under the Stuarts, despite James's undoubtedly active political antennae, somehow the iron fist, just as present under the Tudors, if not more so, keeps poking out of the velvet glove and getting stuck in the parliamentary eye. So already there's a sense of dissatisfaction with the shiny new king in Parliament. The money thing now. There is a line of thought amongst historians, Conrad Russell in particular, who argues that this is insane by Parliament. They simply have no idea what it takes to prosecute a war. The poverty of the English crown and its lack of firepower and a professional army will lead to disaster. They are obsessed with nothing but their constituents' feelings, not the national need. So it's their fault, or at the very least, they share fully in the blame. Another line of thought is that, in fact, MPs were just kidding themselves when they railed against foreign powers and demanded war they didn't really want or were prepared to make the sacrifices required for a war. But probably the truth of it is as much poor handling as anything. There was a head of steam behind the war, but MPs were painfully aware of the needs and concerns of their countries, and that weighed heavily with them. No one really tried to persuade them that their constituents could be proud of how their money would be spent. All they could see was a lack of clarity about what exactly was required. 
that they have voted money for war to finance Count Mansfield already, only for it to die in the mud without any real impact. And they now had royal naval ships which might be used against Protestants, and no one could reassure them that this time everything would be different by telling them exactly how the campaign would be run, because apparently it was part of the king's arcane mysteries. So, 140,000 quid was as far as they were prepared to go, thus far and no further. Well, wherever your sympathies lie, Charles and Buckingham did not lack for determination and persistence. They would have their revenge later, and anyway, all the problems with Parliament would surely be solved by a jolly good war where Mr Jingo would ride into town on his horse war fever to save them all. And so we come at last to the revival that you've been all waiting for of the glorious days of Drake, Hawkins, Frobisher, all those golden victories on the Spanish main. We're off to war. Never mind the money. The purses will open in the joy of victory achievement that will surely follow. In the short term, Charles would use the subsidies and the first instalment of the Queen's dowry from France to pay the bills. The man selected to lead the glorious beard-singeing exercise in Spain was one Edward Cecil, now raised up to the rank of Viscount Wimbledon. It appears that Buckingham was desperate to do it himself, but was talked out of it, which he would later remember and put right next time. So Robert Devereux, interesting enough, the Earl of Essex, was sent with Wimbledon to advise. We've heard of Robert Devereux before. This had been the young man that married Frances Howard, only to be publicly humiliated by her affair with Robert Carr and divorce on the grounds of his impotence. But Essex had five years' military experience fighting in the Thirty Years' War in the Rhineland, and so he went along to advise, and we will hear his name in the future. Cecil was ordered to singe the King of Spain's beard, more specifically, to destroy the King of Spain's shipping and, if possible, take possession of some port on the Spanish coast, and keep an eye out for the treasure fleet, capture if at all possible, since this is the time of year it appeared from the west, laden with colonial treasure. All very Elizabethan. Meanwhile, after the fleet had sailed, Buckingham vented his spleen on Lord Williams and had him removed from his position as Lord Keeper on the who durst defy the omnipotent to arms principle, and then went to the Netherlands to organise a treaty. The result of his visit was indeed a treaty, signed in December 1625 by the English, Dutch and the Danes, to be called the Treaty of The Hague. Parliament had disliked Buckingham himself bigging himself up as a great diplomatic broker, but to be fair to Buckingham, he was no slouch on the European stage of diplomacy. OK, Richelieu was in the process of burning him with a ship's thing, but actually Richelieu was doing exactly the same thing with the Dutch at the same time, in spades actually. And now Buckingham had indeed assembled an impressive anti-Habsburg league. Each of the countries there agreed to work together to contain Habsburg power, secure the restoration of the Palatinate, and preserve the liberties of the German princes. Christian of Denmark committed to raise an army of 36,000 men, the English and Dutch committed to help pay for it, and England and the Dutch Republic agreed to raise a new joint fleet. They tried to persuade France to sign the Treaty of The Hague too, but no dice. And in this, Buckingham saw the hand of Richelieu, and a little more bitterness and dislike was sown. Buckingham arrived back in England to hear that the results of the Spanish jury 
were in. Well, there was rumour and counter-rumour as normal, actually. One ambassador wrote home saying the English had scored famous victories and revived the glory days of Drake. Others were hearing worryingly less positive things. What actually happened was this. Wimbledon and his commanders floated off the coast of Spain in late October when they finally arrived, and they decided that Cadiz was the ideal target. Wimbledon was very worried. His 18,000 army and naval men were sick, very, very inexperienced, unhealthy, and the rawest of raw recruits. The fleet had been put together in double-quick time, and it showed also in the quality of provisions. Nonetheless, things did start off OK when the fort protecting the harbour fell, and after a bit of the required dithering, 2,000 men were put ashore to attack the town itself. Sadly, they appeared not to have sufficient food or water, though, which was a problem, and therefore they took the executive decision that in such circumstances, raiding the local farms and houses wherein were stored vast quantities of wine formed a reasonable solution. Well, problem solved. Everyone could drink. As one report related, the whole army, except only the commanders, was all drunken and in one common confusion, some of them shooting at one another amongst themselves. OK, one problem solved, another bigger one created then. Eventually, the army was in such a state that it had to be reloaded onto the ships and off they went. Obviously, this wasn't going to look good back home, so they went for plan B and looked for the treasure fleet. They did see some ships, couldn't intercept them. If they'd stayed a couple more days, the history of all of this could have been so very different because the treasure fleet was indeed coming in. But they'd suffered enough. They were in a real state. Possibly the crew were still drunk and everyone had heard enough of Danny Boy in the Mountains of the Morn, so they instead did the Lindisfarne thing and ran for home. If they'd had skirts, they'd have lifted them. They didn't sail home so much as straggle home, shedding infected dead bodies as they went. By the time they reached home, it was like the rhyme of the ancient mariner. The many men so beautiful and they all dead did lie. Killed by disease, malnutrition, or just forced to commit suicide by the 15th rendition of that dirge 500 miles. Or maybe just the first rendition was enough, it almost is for me. Of the 18,000-ish that set out, about half returned, and many of them were left hanging around English harbours, half-naked, begging for food and drink. The Privy Council had allocated £5,000 for their relief, but it was clearly not enough. Plymouth Council, who were having to deal with many of them, reported that they were so poorly clad that they have hardly wherewithal to cover their nakedness, which has been the greatest cause of their sickness and mortality. Meanwhile, there was more bad news, I'm afraid. Richelieu and Louis had decided that before the Habsburgs could be dealt with, the Huguenots were first. They started by inflicting a massive defeat on the Huguenot Admiral Soubise and threw the Huguenot army off the Ile de Ré. The Ile de Ré was critical to the survival of La Rochelle. It must be said that it still is, providing the vast majority of the cycle hire shops, but back in 1626, it was rather more existential. The Ile de Ré controlled access to the city. La Rochelle now lay open to siege and could not be resupplied by sea. Soubise had almost no ships left at all. Huguenot sea power, such a thing since Elizabethan times, was deceased. Soubise fled to England, 
to return to La Rochelle for the coming storm. Charles met with his Privy Council, and by the 12th of December it was decided there was nothing for it. Pandora's box must be opened again. Parliament must be recalled to get money to have a second hack at the Spanish War. OK, that is it for this week, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your kind and interesting comments and reviews, and keep them coming in. It keeps life interesting in the shed. Next week I have a week off, but Wolf and I, on the other hand, have still been working away hard and have a review of The Favourite for you, a film that could be as potty as any historically-oriented movie I have ever seen. Rivers, cascades, waterfalls of pottiness, some laugh-out-loud moments and some gross-me-out moments. So that will be with you all next Sunbury. Until then, gentle listeners, good luck and have a great Sen night. <laughs>